Hello, welcome to some Drips Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the sum of, of uh, all parts. But before we do that, Buddy, why don't you show the folks know what it is we do on this podcast? On this podcast, we talk about games. Uh, and today, I guess this is kind of like a more theoretical discussion. Um, and this is my podcast topic, so I'm going to introduce it to everybody. Um, but essentially, the question that I'm interested in, right... If games are kind of created as a, you know, if games are kind of created as a piecemeal product, right? Which is to say that, you know, we work on individual parts of, of our games slowly, and then they all come together into something that kind of coalesces, right? Um, when does that work and when does that not work? And I have a couple of different sort of like veins of attack, right? Like different ways to kind of come at this. One of which is sort of the imp like the the straightforward example of World of Warcraft classic, right? I've kind of alluded to this in the past. Another one is sort of the action button reviews, sort of, um, uh, you know, the way that Tim Rogers in the Action Button Reviews will talk about how different games um, kind of come together into a good game or fail to and and sort of coalesce into a bad game. Uh, I have other sort of thoughts about this when it actually comes to non-game stuff, just as a point of contrast, right? Like, for instance, why do we not think about these in these why do we not think about things in these sorts of terms the same way uh in games that we do with like movies or television for instance um and i think all of that is i don't know all of that is interesting and it's sort of like today's discussion where do you want to where do you want to like start i guess um well why don't we so so we we got it we got a request specifically um in one of our personal chats about sure. wrath of the lich king Okay. Um, and whether or not we're playing Wrath of the Lich King, I'm not. It's like a quick answer to the question. Maybe you answer that, and then you and you said you had a lens to analyze this, this topic through that. So yeah. So I have been playing a tiny bit of Wrath of the Lich King, which is to say that you know I have my classic character. I've been running around, you know, like doing stuff um, on on the the Wrath servers. Um, uh, but I don't have any, you know, like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I have no ambition to, like, clear heroic raids or anything kind of along those lines. But the, but the lens of which w that Wrath of the Lich King is really giving me is, um, is sort of that there does exist sort of sweet spots, right? So, for instance, something that's really interesting about Wrath is that it is kind of the first time that spec and, like, class design really kind of coalesce for the different classes that are in World of Warcraft, right? At the time of Wrath of the Lich King, that number is 10. Um, you know, Warrior, Death Knight, Paladin, Shaman, Hunter, uh, Rogue, Druid, um, Priest, Warlock, Mage, right? Those are, those are the 10 classes, right? Each of those having three specs gives us 30 specs in the game. Um, the thing that's interesting about Wrath Classic is that there's real careful, you know, sort of attention being paid to what makes a rotation, right? What are the abilities that you're using most often? What are your cooldowns look like, right? Um, you know, like, what are the stats that you're specifically looking for? And I would say that Wrath is a sort of first draft at some of this stuff, right? Like, so, for instance, if we were to look at the numbers, Wrath is pretty horrifically unbalanced in terms of, you know, in terms of where damage is coming from, just because, like, Designers didn't have a great sense for tuning at that time, right? They had created powerful rotations that were satisfying to sort of 
playthrough, um, but they were unable, I guess, uh, to to sort of keep those things in line, right? Which is why when we're going to see some of these bosses go down, certain specs in the game that are projected to be just like these absolutely insane heavy hitters, um, you know, like Assassination Rogue is is one that's, that's given this sort of title, um, as well as like Retribution Paladin, right? Um, those pieces, those pieces of fine tuning are missing, but the building blocks are kind of there for the first time, right? One of the reasons that I bounced off of uh, Burning Crusade Classic when I tried to play Burning Crusade was because I felt like class design wasn't quite there yet, right? Like I didn't really have a rotation. the The revamp of the talents that you know kind of happened um, didn't give me a real sort of play style or something to kind of look into, right? But now that I'm playing Under Wrath, I have excuse me, I have new talents that have given me a much clearer, more straightforward rotation where it's like, oh, my build, you're like, my my spec is about applying rend, using rend to trigger overpower, and then using uh, mortal strike when I have the rage, right? Which actually looks pretty common, looks pretty similar to what I have going um, in, in retail WoW, right? Uh, but Wrath is also the high point, you know, like not only in terms of World of Warcraft subscriptions, right? Like we know that WoW was at its very peak with Wrath and has been on a decline ever since um, with just sort of like, you know, a new expansion will come out, they'll get 10 million players and then it'll drop and then they'll get whatever, 8 million players and then it'll drop, that kind of a thing. Um, and we also have some information just from like former games game employees where they talk about how systems that were good and interesting and fun in Wrath of the Lich King were denigrated later on in WoW's life cycle, right? So, for instance, um, Ghostcrawler, the former director, uh, the former game director for uh, World of Warcraft, uh, has talked about how the redesign, like how heroic dungeons were an easy thing to get people to do in Wrath. People liked doing heroic dungeons, right? Um, however, they complained about how easy the heroic dungeons were, and they also complained about the type of gear that they that they got out of these dungeons, right? Uh, which is to say badge gear, right? Being able to go to a vendor, you know, you do the dungeon, you get some badges, you go to a vendor, and eventually you you buy a high-level piece of gear that's pretty desirable off of, off of that vendor. Um, they made changes in the next subsequent expansions, uh, being um, Warlords of Draenor, Mists of Pandaria, and Cataclysm, and they were never able to get people to go into heroics that way again. Right. They essentially sort of killed heroics by answering sort of the feedback around heroics. Right. Uh, and I think that and I think that some of that is sort of like interesting. Like, what are the pieces of the game that, you know, what are the pieces of the game that worked well? Oh, I'm sorry. And then another piece of this, which is just to say that those individual badge, you know, like those badge vendors. Badge vendors at the time were sort of denigrated as, you know, by by members of the community as sort of like welfare gear, right? Um, when it was sort of viewed as bad luck protection, right? Um, badge vendors basically had dis good items, right? Desirable items um, on them. And any any boss you killed would, would drop badges for you. And you would go take those and you would turn them in. Um, and so like maybe after two or three weeks of raiding, right, you would maybe walk away with a piece of badge gear for a slot that was really hard for you to attain, right? Um, or something kind of along those lines. Uh, this was, like I said, people, people got really up in arms about this. And part of that is that, is this feeling of building towards a thing is less satisfying than the surprise factor, right? Which is something else that we've talked about on the podcast before, right? People want 
to be surprised on Christmas morning. They want to open up a thing and see and see something cool that surprises them because that heightens sort of the excitement of that moment. And in the same way, they want to see their gear drop from bosses so they can go, oh, whoa, oh, wow, right, or whatever. Whereas when you make something a long, slow grind to build up to, to sort of, you know, take that probability, spread it out over the number of days, and incrementally let somebody build their way up to 100% probability that they get the item, all of a sudden that is a not, that's not satisfying, right? Because it is viewed as a grind, it is viewed as mandatory, and if you haven't done it yet, it is just like, ugh, another gate that I have to sort of pass through in order to access some sort of fabled identity of the, of the, of the real game. Uh, this has now sort of wound all the way back. Whereas in modern, you know, like in retail world of Warcraft, in modern world of Warcraft, players are asking for a return to the, like the days of badge vendors, right? Where you will, where, where, you know, different, different like developers will talk about the ways that that gear is dropping why you know like why gear is dropping the way that it is when it's coming out whatever um and players will just say just bring back badge vendors it's that easy right well it's it's probably not that easy i guess and so all of this kind of is is what's interesting to me because it is it is the idea of taking a game and you're not looking at like the big picture you're not looking at the full you know the the holistic product you're looking at these individual systems to sort of like tweak and change but when how many of those systems tweaking and changing yields a worse holistic product product right versus the opposite end of the spectrum how how do, do some of those individual systems working in, in you know in congruence with one another yield a really good strong holistic project right a lot of people would say that wrath of the lich king was their favorite version of world of warcraft and we can presume that a lot of that had to do with the coalescence of class design you know the way that they had access to certain pieces of gear um the way that the game was starting to develop boss encounters uh to be more mechanically interesting and test players harder right um i don't know I've, i feel like i've been talking for like 10 minutes do you I, Am I in the ballpark? To, is any of this making sense to you? No, I mean it, it absolutely makes sense, right? Like how how do like how do constituent parts make up a whole? Um, and where are those breakpoints? And like you know, like how 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 far do you does bending any one point part particularly screw up uh, a whole thing? And how like I don't know. I feel I feel like you know. Cause, so just just to to kind of like set a little bit more of the scene. Something else you brought up is that um, and Tim Rogers is. Most recent two action button reviews, um, uh, with Boku no Natsuyama or something like that, Natsuyaki. Um, Bo uh, Boku no Natsuyasumi, is what I think it is. Yasumi yeah. is the word for break. For as he, as he sarcastically calls it, my summer break. Uh, if if you were to English dub it, um, from a couple weeks ago, and the Cyberpunk twenty seventeen review from like nine months ago. Um, he talks about how like Boto no not how my summer break basically comes to like it as a whole does a good job of evoking these the summer spirit of being a child in the Japanese countryside regardless of if you've experienced that particular life thing or not um, versus Cyberpunk's twenty seventy seven where one of his chief criticisms of the game was that it's um, it kind of like a a disparate set of systems um, that don't really coalesce into a, a good holistic game. Um, 
Part of this for me is like with regards to WoW in particular is that WoW has always felt like a game that wasn't trying to be. Are you scratching your nose with a clothespin? <laughs> I guess I did. Yeah, I did do that. I have a clothespin here. Um, you know, yeah, say hello. Hello. <laughs> That's a joke you'll only get if you watch the YouTube. <laughs> or watch it live. But sorry. That's true. Also, or watch it live. Yes. <laughs> uh, but anyway. Point, um, point being is that WoW always felt kind of like a a game that was like designed to be or, or tried to be a a, a, uh, a less holistic or didn't care as much about being a holistic game, right? It, always, it has these like different modes of play that are all like fairly divorced from each other. Um, but uh, now you, but like thinking about it, right? Like the systems all kind of feed into each other and they are kind of sectioned off from each other, but it doesn't feel as... I mean, I think part of it is that like WoW feels like a game that's like built on top like 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 kind of like lampshades its own artifice as a game, even though like mm -hmm. theoretically it's not whereas Cyberpunk doesn't want to lampshade its artifice as a game as much. And so like you're less forgiving of it. But um I don't know. I think the reason that I think you could probably put the same system in both WoW and Cyberpunk and it would work it would make WoW feel less, or it would feel, Cyberpunk would feel less less holistically together than WoW would because of this kind of like expectation of of different modes of play in in WoW. Whereas like Cyberpunk feels like you're kind of playing like several different games that don't quite all all, all hit the mark. Does that sound about right? Yeah, and I think part of this is um, you know you the the word that I think is useful here is evocative, right? This is something I think about like in a professional context a lot, which is to say that. The point, at the end of the day, the point of video games, and I would probably extend this out to the point of art in general, but let's just, you know, keep it contained for now. The point of video games is to be evocative, right? It is about giving you the sensation in, like, let's say World of Warcraft terms, of being a, you know, a raging berserker, right? Like as a fury warrior, right? Or as a dastardly, underhanded duelist, for instance, if you are a an outlaw rogue, right, or if uh, or as a you know um, I don't know like a spell slinging you know like a like a spell slinging blaster kind of caster, right, which would be like fire mage or something like that, right? Like the different you know all of these pieces of any of these different classes are built to come together including not just the classes themselves right like not just the individual class design of like okay well if i you know like if i'm a demonology warlock versus an, uh, an affliction warlock an affliction warlock puts a dot on a target and the dot shows up as a debuff on their bar and there's a little animation and you watch like you know you watch them sort of glow with shadow or something like that, or like they're on fire or something like that, right? Versus a uh, uh, that, uh, uh, a demonology warlock who is going to summon a pair of two demons to go, you know, fight and attack, right? Those two things could do the exact same amount of damage. Like the numbers on those could be the same amount of damage. The dot and the dogs could represent the same total damage over time as one another, right? But part of the evocative nature of being a master summoner who is summoning powerful demons on the fly and being a, you know, uh, like, a, like a hexing curse, 
you know, who, who, who drains the life out of, out of my opponents by cursing them and watching them slowly wither under the, the effect of my spells. Like those are two evocative experiences that are created by, you know, the art, right. And the writing of uh, how the tooltips are written to talk about, right. Like what these things, even just the icon, right. Like the icon of a charging demon being different than the icon of a skull that is withering under purple, you know, rot or whatever, or whatever the sort of case may be. Right. And this also goes into, you know, like the world around it, right? Like, you know, part of being a master summoner is having cool and interesting opponents for me to attack, right? Whether that is, you know, dragons or the, you know, like animated husks that are the Mossworn or, you know, dreadlords or whatever, like whatever enemies and whatever reasons that the quest design team can create for you to fight those enemies. At the end of the day, all of those things are built to create the evocative experience of, you know, stepping out of your regular mundane life and into, and into essentially the, the world of Warcraft, right? One of, like, one of the things that I have famously said is that nobody would play a version of World of Warcraft that was the exact same, except you got rid of all of the flavor, right? If it was just stick figure, like different colored stick figures hitting ability one, ability two, and ability three, like that, nobody, nobody would play that. Nobody's, nobody's interested in that. But the ways in which that breaks down on like an individual level are very different, right? Because like people have all of these other ancillary sort of needs, right? At the end of the day, most people are going to choose a class that is based on right like something that, like some play pattern that appeals to them but there are also going to be people who choose a class because it's numbers right because they want to be the top of the dps charts this thing is meta it feels good to to be doing the most damage and so they are going to swap right to in order to like min max their their whatever right for these people you know the, the game is still evocative and it is evocative in sort of a, like a like a different way but it's like evocative in the same way that like maybe a sport is evocative right um which is to say that like you are part of a team you are you are participating in a competition right and you want to perform at, at your highest level um and so, like, that's the kind of thing that that's the kind of thing that you're 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 sort of going for. And all of these different pieces have to come in to create that evocative, you know, like that evocative whole. And I think that's what Tim Rogers praises about Boku no Natsuyasumi because you know, it, like taking the summer off, summer taking August off to go to the Inaka, which is the you know the Japan like rural Japan essentially. Um, Especially when you're a city kid, especially when you're like in Tokyo, like you, you know, you live your life in Tokyo. That is that is a specific thing that you can design systems around, perfectly evoking, right? Or, uh, you know, even to use a third game and muddy this metaphor and make it even more complicated, right? When I'm playing something like Total War or something like Europa Universalis or Stellaris, the different mechanics of those games are also built to create the evocative nature of whatever it is, you know, that I'm that I'm working towards, right? So, for instance. You know, in Europa Universalis, when I'm playing Spain, Spain has a very colonization-focused, uh, essentially, like, idea tree. This is, like, tech trees, but for individual, for individual, like, nations, where, you know, the point of playing Spain is to be a conquistador, basically, right? Um, and go, you're going to discover the new world, you are going to colonize it, you are going to, you know, create these huge, you know, wide-reaching colonies that are funneling wealth back into Spain, right? Versus if you're playing um, 
somewhere in the HRE, right, the Holy Roman Empire, it is much more about the internal politics of the of the of the Holy Roman Empire, where you want to become the Holy Roman Emperor, you want to wield the weight of this massive conglomerate of disparate states in order to exact, you know, political power on a on a massive scale, you know, whether that's as Austria or as Brandenburg or as, you know, whatever other kind of component part, right? Um and I just think that I just think that all of this, all of this is interesting. Uh, and I, 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 yeah, I see Lou came in the chat says I came in mid metaphor and I have no idea what's going on. We went from wow to stick figures to roll Japan to being Spain. Help the, the really the point at the end of the day is that is that I think the point of games is to be you know is to create this evocative feeling whether that is making you feel like a powerful general in the Warhammer universe whether that's you know giving you the feeling of conquering the new world as Spain whether that is giving you the feeling of being you know whatever a uh, uh, an un an unkillable war machine as a protection warrior in, in World of Warcraft, or whether or not the feeling is being a nine-year-old J Japanese boy from Tokyo going out to visit his aunt and uncle in the Inaka in Boku no Natsu Yasumi. Um, and I think the major failing of, of certain games like Cyberpunk 2077 is that individual components work against that overall sort, sort of evocation, right? Um, which yeah. sort of harkens back to the goblin thing that we were talking about a couple casts ago. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think that uh, that makes sense though, right? Because like, I like Cyberpunk a fair about amount, but it feels like it feels like a really a really ambitious video game more than a Cyberpunk experience, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, and there are other games in this genre that I think do Cyberpunk much more with much less, if that makes sense. Um, so, for instance. I would also classify something like Skyrim as, you know, sort of a an open world RPG experience sure. with all of these side quests or, or whatever. And I think that the Skyrim experience is much more sort of evocative. I like to this day, I can just immediately just fall away into into Skyrim in a way that I was never able to achieve with Cyberpunk, right? Um and there's something about that, right? Like there's something about the magic of Skyrim or Fallout New Vegas would be another example that I think people would use from kind of that classic time. Um, you know, you would maybe call uh, uh, you would maybe call other Fallout games, right? Like people would maybe argue or I wouldn't, Oblivion. but other people, yeah, or yeah, like Oblivion, um, uh, Fallout Three, Fallout Four. Um, you know, maybe you would think of uh, uh, the the uh, the Mordor Shadow of War games, right? Like those are these like open world sort of fantasy experiences, right? Like, I, I, all I, of these. I actually think that's a good example because I feel like Shadow of Mordor did a better job than Shadow of War because I feel yeah. like Shadow of War like fell into like that that too gamey uh, trap. Um, uh, yeah, to be clear, I'm not calling uh, Skyrim cyberpunk. I'm really talking about like sort of this genre of games, right? Whether it is cyberpunk, whether it is fantasy, whether, yeah, like you know, like it's open else. world RPG, right? Because yeah. like you know, actually. That's may this may be a good example, right? Like um God of War Ragnarok versus like Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Like Valhalla feels like a game more than it feels like uh I think part of that's also the framing device, right? It keeps kicking you out to do the meta plot stuff, which is fine, I guess, but like it it also like it also cuts against the ability for it to feel like you're reaching 
warrior because you're not. You're you're supposed to be a, I guess, young woman who is playing the memories of this Viking warrior. You know, to be honest, I don't really super remember. But um, I, I think I played it's part a lot of, the of Valhalla, and I like it. But I, you know, I don't remember what the framing device was. Well, I think that's part of the problem, right? Like, there's not enough stress on the framing device to make you feel like you're actually part of the framing device. It feels like a thing that's happening. But to me, it also feels like because because that conceit is used to justify so many, like the the mechanic, like it is used as a diegetic way to justify the game mechanics, right? Like it feels it feels like a game. Because, like, all those things that, like, maybe you can't, like, it it feels like it tries to be too clever by half, I think. Whereas God of War Ragnarok, it has a lot of interface elements, but you're supposed to be playing as Kratos, and that works, right? Like, it, you know, it, it feels like you are playing the, the God of War um, in, in that way. Whereas, I think you get a lot of that, like, you get a lot of that feeling with, with Valhalla, but it still feels like you're playing a game about that, which is, like, a weird... Weird kind of distinction to make, but I think that's important for kind of like making games super memorable and making them super, um, you know, uh, making them super impactful. Um, maybe this is like, a, I think, a, a point in kind of the games of sports versus games as art talk that we have a bunch is like, I don't think Call of Duty is very, very good at being evocative, right? Like, yeah, I love playing Call of Duty though, right? Like, I played the beta, uh, a couple weeks ago, I might buy this year's version of it, but I'm not buying that game to feel like you know a modern soldier on the battlefield, right? I'm playing that. I'm playing that game because I want to like shoot people and hear sweet guitar riffs when I level up my AK-47 and put like a gold skin on it, right? Like that is totally divorced from from anything, and like I don't think it's like man. I saw. I don't. I don't remember the context for this, but I, I saw something somewhere. Maybe it was like the title of a video I didn't watch. It was like Battle Pass. No, it was the title of an extra punctuation that I didn't read. That like Battle Passes keep games from being art, essentially. Right? That there's no live service game that can function as art, which I don't think is a take I agree with. But I haven't. This is from Yahtzee. I didn't read the whole thing. Mm. So or I didn't read the thing at all. I just read the headline. So I can't address this argument properly. But I think I do. I, I think I can immediately understand where it's going because I understand this nature. And I do think that this is part of the conversation when it comes to stuff like, I mean, obviously for me, it's like, wow. Right. Um, but uh, so, for instance, in in wow, there's this there's this kind of colloquialization uh, that was created by, I actually believe, uh, an old item designer from the game named Jeff Hamilton. Um, who talked about the WoW being two games, right? One game is sort of a Dungeons & Dragons simulator, essentially, right? It is you and a bunch of your friends. You're going to get together. You are going to go into a, a, a dungeon, a raid, and you are going to fight a, you know, like a boss with neat mechanics until you get the loot, right? And the point of the, that game is to kill the, kill the dragon, loot the dragon's horde, Right and feel like and like a conquering adventurer, right? And that's and how that's cool and how that's interesting. Another part of like uh, that's game one. Game two is I am going to show up to practice. Essentially, um, I am going to 
work I'm going to work out and and try really hard in this t- this athletic team environment essentially this sports team environment and here is an external stats keeping website that is going to track my progress measured against everyone else's of my position on the team and I'm going to be able to you know to brag about how good I am in the same way that a baseball player you know, in the same way that Alex Rodriguez, I guess before he took steroids, would have been able to say, I am a fantastic baseball player over someone who is just a mediocre baseball player, right? Those are two games that simultaneously, like, live on top of one another in World of Warcraft rating, right? Like, you could look at rating through both of those sorts of, um, through both of those sorts of perspectives. And in many ways, right, like, that second perspective has gained a lot of power and force in recent years, right? You know, the biggest World of Warcraft screamer after Asmongold is Limit Max, right? Who is basically the number one, you know, esport guy in the world right um not to mention all the other different ways that like the you have the arena world champions you have mythic plus you know uh the great push you have the mdi the mission mythic dungeon invitational all that stuff that is also sort of like esportsifying world of warcraft you also have people on the opposite end of the spectrum right people who are just there to hang out they're interested in the lore right you you know youtubers who are interested in in the lore talianus and evitel or whoever else um who you know you role players right like that kind of stuff who are mostly interested in game one right They, they are on board for the game one version of that you know, like, of that sort of experience. And I think this is maybe the, like, the diffusion of that games-as-art, games-as-sport dichotomy because at the end of the day, WoW is both at the exact same time, which is kind of nuts to think about. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, Yeah, no, it's 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 interesting because, like, we, we you know, when we do our derpies every year, you know, we have, for the past couple of years, done games as sport, games as art, best game of mm-hmm. the year. And sometimes that best game of the year is the best synthesis of those two elements. But, like, WoW, I think, wants to hold them separate from each other at, at, a, at a certain level, which is interesting. And it still works, right? Like, like you said. Because, um, like, Game 1 and Game 2 are very separate experiences within World of Warcraft, whereas something like, I would say, God of War Ragnarok, right? Like, that, that game does both as... Um, as one, right? Like it, it is, it is there for the uh, is there for that for for that synthesis moment and trying to seamlessly meld the two together, um, at yeah. least for the most like, part. Like I think on one end you might have something like Rocket League, which is pretty truly games as sport. Or, yeah, it's maybe the most game as sport I can think of off of the off of the top of my head, um, outside of just true sports simulators like like FIFA or whatever. Even those, I would actually think I would argue are probably more evocative than. Uh, like, like in a games as art sense, because like it's try like a lot of the times those games are trying to give you the feeling of like managing this sports team in and of itself, and like the you know like it's it, that yeah, you're at that you're point it's the, almost like the sports people, right? Like you could yeah, say yeah, yeah. in like the fantasy elements that don't need to be there, which is like penalties, right? There's no reason in a simulation where you need to ever have a penalty. You just keep people from doing you know things that are illegal, right? But yeah, they introduce and, and those that games, stuff. And those games almost always have this overarching framing device of, like, you are a coach of your team, right? Which which is, like, that has more in common with, like, a sports movie than it does with, like, you know, a sports broadcast, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, to, to your point, no one plays, like, 
you know, football simulator devoid of the team markings. Everybody plays Madden because that's the one that has the NFL license, right? Like, Yeah, and nobody plays a version of Madden where all you are doing is playing one player on the field, right? You are playing the version of Madden, which is very pulled back, and you can change between the different players. You're setting the plays. You're doing all the stuff that the coach would be doing, right? Whereas, whatever the case may be, I mean, this, this is sort of off topic. My point is, is that Rocket League is actually, I think, a better game as sport than games based on traditional sports, right? Um, so that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum, you might have something like Mutazione, right? Um, it, like Mutazione behind the frame. I, Mutazione probably probably more so than that. Mutazione is fundamentally an artistic experience. The thing that it is interested in doing is getting you to believe in this world, believe in these characters, follow their narrative through through to its through line, right? Break that up every once in a while with like just some incredibly straightforward, not hard to complete. Like I would never in a million years say that it is a challenge for a player to solve the gardens. The gardens are there to, you know, provide something tactile for a player to do outside of just running around the town and talking at each of the individual dialogue boxes, right? Um, and the culmination of that is that the story comes to a narrative climax and ends, right? You you play through all of the individual dialogue encounters, you follow all of the plots until they all get wrapped up in a climactic confrontation with whatever, and the story comes to an end, right? And there are games in the middle of those two things, like God of War, right? Which is simultaneously built to be something of a gameplay challenge, right? Like, you're not supposed to just walk through God of War. Part of it is about hitting the buttons on the controllers in the correct ways to beat your opponents, obviously, right? But it is also about connecting to Kratos, connecting to whatever the stupid kid's name is, um... And the dynamic, that, that father's, yeah, Atreus, yeah, it's Atreus, and that father-son dynamic that the two of them have together, right? Um, and then on the opposite, like, in a weird way, it's like, so that's a spectrum, and you have something in the middle, but it's not even a spectrum. It's, I guess, like a circle or something, because I would say WoW is on the opposite end of the spectrum from God of War, because it is not a synthesis, but it is sort of like a, um, uh... It is just, it is that it is two in one, right? It is these two things simultaneously with the exact same mechanics, but they are disparate pieces of the puzzle, right? Because WoW can separate out LFR difficulty or normal difficulty from mythic difficulty, it has this ability to create a, a, a space for games as sports players and a space for games as arts players, and they cohabit that space which is the world of Warcraft, but they, but it is not a synthesis of those two things. It is not asking players to do both at once. It is generally speaking, asking players to, you know, find exactly how much of a sport and how much of an art they want it to be, which is way more complicated. When we created this diaspora years ago, <laughs> this is way more complicated yeah. than we had ever expected it to become. Yeah, no, this is also interesting because, like, I'm, I'm thinking, right, like, you know, there's a certain definition of, like, a game is art that's, like, good at, like, conveying a kind of, like, deep and complex message, right? Like, I think you could yeah. say something like, say, like, Dear Esther or any of these walking simulators that have, like, relatively minimal gameplay but tell compelling and interesting stories um, do, right? But then the other side of this, to your point, like, I think there's, like, a real thing to the art 
of evoking a particular thing, which I think hews less closely to that kind of like pure message uh, story part, right? Like there's like a like this is like say Skyrim versus Skyrim versus say God of War Ragnarok, right? Like yeah. Skyrim is about making you feel like the fantasy hero, right? Um, and letting you like like submerse yourself in that experience, and it pro- like it does that better than like God of War Ragnarok is about telling a good story about Kratos. Whereas like, which is different than like, you know, playing as, you know, something like the rest of where you're like experiencing a particular specific story, which is different than, or like gone home, you're playing someone who has come home um, to find an empty house, right? Versus, but it's like about telling that story environmentally versus something like Skyrim, which is about, um, Evoking what it's like to be that that certain thing, which is what we've been talking about here, right? Yeah. Um, and I think there's like, it's interesting because I, I think you can make like a, a a pretty strong argument. I think that something like, um, you know, so a game I have, I have praised as art in the past has been uh, the Return of the Oberdin, right? Um, and weirdly, I think that you could make it uh, like you could make the case that that game is better at evoking the weirdness of being uh, essentially an insurance claims investigator with a magic stopwatch, right? Like, um, then, like, certain story, like story-focused games are, at, like, you know, evoking the experience of being their characters. You, you, you know, like, the more derisive way to put this is, like, they're, they're basically, like, movies, like, vaguely interactive movies, right? Like, um, I don't know. I, I feel like there's... I feel like I'm not getting myself across super well, but, like, there's, like, an well, art... So for- I, th- something I think is interesting is uh, so part of part of how I think about you know art in general, media in general, is dividing it into these component parts, right? So, for instance, Aristotle in the Poetics, and this has always been my framework, divided theater in particular into six component parts in descending order of importance, right? It's plot, character, theme, setting. Um, Melody is what he uses here, and that's because he's musical, right? And then essentially spectacle, he uses a different word, but really the thing he's talking about is is sort of surprise and spectacle, right? Like novelty, that kind of that kind of stuff, right? So for instance, you might say that something like um uh god what was the movie that we just saw that was exactly like this that oh bullet train bullet train is a movie that is propped up by its plot right it is intricately plotted where all of these different you know swiss watch pieces are falling into place at just the right moments as to be satisfying like narratively satisfying as a whole right whereas something like uh John Wick, right? We would say on an action, like on an action filmmaking level, right? Or a world building level, John Wick is what, that's what makes that thing narratively satisfying, right? Um, And you can have different peak, like component pieces of the thing that make the thing good. Something like Mutazione, I would say Mutazione is a fantastic game, right? You know, like nominated for a million independent independent games festival awards, right? lavished with praise from critics and fans or whatever but like the thing that makes mutazioni good is that the plot and characters are like draw you in right you are playing kai's story and you are sort of inhabiting her head but you are meeting all of the different you know characters in the ensemble of mutazioni and they are uh, i should use a better example for this than the one that my company made and that i personally shipped but whatever 
I, I'm a, this is this is my privilege of making games. I get to use my own games as examples. Um, but I think Skyrim, right, the art of Skyrim is all in the world building, right? It's in creating this setting that you can just sort of, like, fall into completely where, you know, it is you are going from town to town and you are learning the different ways in which these towns work and what their problems are and how you can solve some of them, right? And you have Windhelm, which is the town of this guy who is doing this stuff, right? Um, you can go do individual quest lines, like what are the mages up to, right? Like you can customize your character. The character in Mutazioni is very straightforward and defined in the same way that Kratos is, right? Which is, this is a specific person who is doing specific things, right? There are really not that many choices in either, as far as I as far as I understand, God of War or Mutazione as to how Kratos or Kai go through their you know go through their individual experiences. They are generally speaking pl playing through an individualized narrative that plays out from beginning to end. Right? Um, Skyrim is the opposite of that. Character basically doesn't exist in Skyrim because it is built to be projected upon. It is built as a like the character in Skyrim is built as a means of expression of how you want to interface with this unique and compelling and interesting world, right? Um, and I think all of that is all of that is like really interesting and, and compelling and tough to I don't know tough to tough to parse, right? Like yeah. what are the what are the component pieces of of all of that? Yeah. So so this is interesting because. You mentioned when you went on your thing about Aristotle, there's like the eight types of fun um, that like get brought up in like game design articles. And just to go over them quickly, there's sensation, which is like the physical aspects. I think when we talk about this, like usually this gets applied to tabletop games and sensation is typically like, you know, pieces. Um, but I think this would apply to things like, you know, Destiny feels good because it does like game recoil on sheen scrape. You know, it makes the weapons feel weighty, even though there's like no difference in feedback on your mouse. I think that's kind of what sensation would be like in the video game context. There's fantasy, which I think is just like world building aspect. Narrative, I think it's pretty self explanatory. It's a story and whatnot. Challenge, uh, fellowship, uh, discovery, expression, and submission. Submission being kind of like this, um, generally described as kind of like. The grindiness aspect, like the, the enjoyable parts of grinding, also sometimes kind of like you know, like like um, being part of the it being part of the routine has its own pleasure. Well, this is also the, this is the machine zone, right? That, yeah. that we've talked about in other contexts. Yeah, yeah, but like it, it's interesting because like you know, I think you're absolutely right, but I also think that like you can like map some of these types of fun to specific like aspects of like you know our relatively binary scale of like art or sport, right? Like fantasy narrative to some ex extent. Um, expression um, those are all like part of like the art aspect um, which where I think like you know like narrative and fantasy are like very solidly in that that art aspect um, versus like uh, challenge and submission um, are more part of like the uh, challenge especially part of the sport aspect sensation maybe is even part of that like sensation can kind of like go both ways like I think you could like like you know, you could make an or, argument. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. For instance, I actually think that you could probably make an argument on me on many of these for different. Like, so the one that I'm thinking of off the top of my head is discovery. The if I am a game as sport player, right? 
there is a lot of fun in figuring out how this thing works, right? Like a world first raider figuring out, or actually maybe a better example of this is like summoning salt. When summoning salt is dissecting famous speed runs and, and unpacking kind of the world records, right? He is engaging with these games purely as sport, right? He really does not give a fuck about any of the sort of like artistic ends of what that game is going to, is going to look at. Right. But, the the joy of that and the joy of the speedrunners doing the thing that he is then summarizing in his YouTube videos, right, is in the discovery, is in fi figuring out this uncharted territory of, oh, well, if I use this crazy hack or this, you know, interesting build, I can actually you know, leapfrog someone else's records. I can beat someone else's records um, before, you know, like before they are, they are able to do that. Right. If I am a world first raider, I am inter interfacing with world of Warcraft purely as a sport at that point. So much so that we would call that esports. right? It is for the time that world first rating exists. It is the dominant esport on the planet, right? You get hundreds of thousands of people who are watching these Twitch streams and they do this, you know, for two or three weeks, every three months or every six months, basically. Right. Well, those people, as they are discovering what the world of war, you know, like, like what the, the raid mechanics are and they are figuring out strategies to bring to those raid mechanics. They are engaging with like discovery as fun. And I feel like I could go through each of these and do that exact same thing. Even something like narrative, right? Like, I think that there's quite a lot to of power, right, to the narrative that gets created in sports environments, right? It's something that people talk about when it comes to, um, when it comes to esports all the time is like the moment where someone has the bottom of the ninth home run that creates a powerful narrative in that sports context entirely that is fun and explosive and really interesting. And that's not artful at all, but it is like, does, does that make sense? I don't know. I, I feel like, I feel like, I feel like you, you, you could, I think, there's a strong argument we made that like narrative and challenge are both kind of diametrically put like, you know, if you've got like an axis that like cuts through this wheel of fun types, right? That challenge is at one end and narrative is on the other in terms of like art versus sport. Cause I think that like what you're talking about, like that narrative aspect around baseball that like talks about like reasons why sports documentaries and like sports games can have like compelling dramatic stakes even though they're mostly sports thing. But I think that's like the parts of that, that like approach art rather than being like, like the, rather than being the parts of that, that are, that are the sport. Like, I think that's like a part of that separate from the sports part. So, so to be clear, I'm not, I, I don't want to, I don't want to use like a sports documentary as the thing. I, I, it is just, it, it shows an encapsulation of what is being experienced in the moment. Right? Like when, okay. When, in TSM versus CLG at MLG Anaheim 2013, they had this insane, insane back and forth where the players were, the, the players did a full, you know, kill of the enemy team, right? And went all the way to the enemy nexus just in time for everyone to respawn. And then they got full, what, what, what did they call that? Aced. They, and then they got fully aced and then, and then someone decided to backdoor the other nexus while the other team is fine. And then the nexus finally goes down. Everyone in that arena is caught up in the game as 
narrative and the, the fun of the narrative and the game as sport at the same time. They're caught up in the drama of the moment of this incredibly interesting heart pounding match playing out before their eyes, right? That's fun. That's drama. That's tension, right? But it is entirely devoid of any kind of artistic kind of context. And when those players I, I, I think on you're that wrong stage, there. I think you're wrong about it being devoid of artistic context. I think it's bringing in a little bit of artistic context to that. Cause like if you saw the same thing play out between like, two AI bots. I think you don't have that energy there. I think that's like the art, like the artistic version of like the the artistic bit that makes sports compelling in, right? Like no one wants like no one watches two robots play chess against each other, right? They always watch chess for like you know a robot versus a human or two humans playing, right? And I think that's like the narrative. I think I think this is me basically saying that you can't have like a completely sport sport based thing because like like the narrative narrative hook is what pulls you in and that's like part of the artistry of it even if it's a relatively low art environment so i interesting so that i think i disagree with that f that fundamental predication because I think that there do exist 100% games as sports, right? Like, I would say that maybe League of Legends isn't a great example, but baseball or, like, like so football. So, the, ga the games are, like, the actual games playing on the, like, like the actual mechanics are, but, like, the match as a thing spectated by humans between two teams, I don't think is 100% sport, right? Like, there is other stuff there, right? Like... Huh. Like okay. a football game that is red versus blue and just plays out, you know, like something something like um uh what was the like the NES uh game, I forget the name the name of it. Or like like Blades of Steel is the hockey game, right? Like those have like theoretically the teams on it, but they're basically just colored things. That's like basically pure sport, right? But when I am in like, you know, the Rock, the Prudential Center in Newark, New Jersey, and I'm watching Devils face off against the Rangers, right? There is something additional and different there. Because otherwise, I could just, like, watch two computer players play, you know, the Devils versus the Rangers, and that should be the, the same experience. But it's not, right? Like, but, it's, Okay, so I think that the match is a fundamental piece of the game construction. The, ga the, the game is entirely, like, theoretical, and it is fundamentally incomplete in the same way that a script is an incomplete version of movie if you do not have players playing the match, right? Like, and, th and the principle is true whether or not you're in The Rock in Newark or whether you're at a Little League game, right? Like, my Little League teams were named after, like, I was a member of the Bush team, and the Bush was a landscaping company that sponsored our sure. team, so we had the Bush, right? Like, there's no, there's no, it's not, it's not even like we're the Tigers or the Bush Tiger. It's just like literally, we were, we were just the Bush, um, and there is still that level of narrative drama and tension to whether or not we win or lose our little league game, right? Like, if I hit a grand slam in the bottom of the ninth in little league, it's fundamentally the same drama intention and narrative as me hitting if i were on the yank like me hitting a grand slam at the bottom of the ninth if i were on the yankees does that make sense i don't think that's true like i think like you know the the, the difference there is like you know like who cares right like if you know let's let's say let's say a high school buddy is on his high school baseball team right sure like he would have held run in the bottom of the ninth versus a yankee that does it 
right? Like, there's a fundamental difference there based on the fact that it's you versus, like, you as a high schooler versus you as a Yankee. And those have different, like, valences to them, right? Like, some, like, you know, sometimes there is a big push there, right? Like, if you're, like, you know, you know, a rising talent and this high school thing makes a difference or, like, your team's an underdog team or whatever. But that's all, like, part of the narrative around it, right? Because I don't think there's something, like, I think if what you were saying was true, it was 100% sport, those would be, in fact, easy, like, easily substitutable for each other or for any bottom of the ninth home run. But that's not true for, like, a number, like, for uh, for reasons that that are kind of, like, tied to like the small amount of artistry that does enter into into these kinds of things. Okay, it's, but but here's here's the here's my fundamental thing. At the end of the day, whether or not I'm a Yankee, whether or not I'm in Little League, when I hit that home run, what kind of fun am I having? Part of the fun that I'm having is the drama, right? Is when the chips were on the line. I was able to hit the ball out of the park and get all three of my teammates around, you know, around to home so we could score four runs and win you know win the game or whatever or whatever that sort of like looks like right and in so far as we are asking the question what are these different eight kinds of fun right how do they map on our our sort of uh template of games as art games as sport that is a moment where i am playing the game as a sport and the kind of fun that i am having is narrative fun does that make sense it, it does, but I, I don't think that, that that fun comes out of the sport aspect of it. Like, yeah, well, it does because the sport created the like the gameplay mechanics created that situation where a narrative sort of procedurally generated itself in a way, right? And I think this is why the computers thing, right? Like, I understand your computers point, but I, I sort of think it's missing the mark because a computer isn't capable of having fun, right? The the point isn't to say that I, as an audience member, am watching the game play out and there that's where the fun is taking place, right? Like, yes, when I watch two computers play against one another, that's really not all that interesting and I'm not on board with it. The point is that the actor, the player of the game is the one who is experiencing the fun and a computer isn't capable of experiencing fun right you you a computer cannot can neither derive fun from game as challenge nor game as narrative right it's completely you know, immaterial to a computer because a computer can't experience fun but a player can and the kinds of fun that a player can have in a baseball game or in a chess match or in whatever else is both game as challenge and game as narrative fun at the same time right in baseball i can have the fun of defeating the enemy team which is a much better team they have a better record or maybe this pitcher is really good and he struck out the rest of my team or whatever and i can overcome the challenge of his curveball that's fun right but i can also have the narrative fun of you know the drama and tension of the moment of whether or not i can score the game right home no, no, run and i do I, I, so I, I i i see what you're saying but i i think that's like mild amounts of game like you know of story story as art like or you know of 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 uh, games as art entering the picture right i think that's like why you can make like that was my point about the documentary thing right is like, you can make a documentary about those like moments because there's like an artful story to be told there right um like there couldn't you make a put could you make a documentary about that challenge though right or a, a documentary is a bad way to put this like a, a guide Right. If I create a guide for a puzzle game, aren't I also doing the same thing that the documentary is doing? Which is to say, I am making a sort of derivative work 
off of the thing itself, one of which focuses on the fun as narrative, like explaining the narrative and why that's enthralling to someone, one of which is in explaining the challenge to someone. Right, but, but the, the guide is not the, – the, the guide is not there to – like the guide, the guide is not a piece of work in itself, right? Like it's not capturing any of the narrative, and so it's only sold to people – who are looking to mechanically master the game, right? Like, if I have a deep appreciation for Tetris players, right? Like, I might go watch, you know, the World Tetris Championships, even if I'm not good at playing the game. But, like, I don't read a Tetris guide if I'm not playing the game practically, right? Like, like, like the only sense in which I could see myself reading a Tetris guide if I'm not a Tetris player is if I'm trying to understand a how a player plays the game but that that seems like a different a different thing to me right well that well that seems immaterial like what like to what extent does that does that matter right they are both these derivative works that are explaining the different kinds of right. essentially fun that are that are a component piece of the game itself right, but, but the a, the documentary is not it, the documentary is not capturing or the documentary is capturing the narrative right the game guide is not like and like it's like like again, fun, fun. We've talked about this before. Like fun is like maybe the an inexact word, but like sure. the documentary is transferring that experience from someone who experienced it or someone who watched it to someone who has not. Right? It is a story that you can tell to someone else for their entertainment. Right? The guide is not there for entertainment. The guide is there for guidance. Right? I don't know that I think that that matters though. I feel like the, fa- the what matters is it is one. It is a derivative piece of media that explains the component part of the foundational piece. Of but media. the documentary isn't just explaining, right? Like a documentary that just goes over what happened in the game is boring and nobody watches it, right? Sure, but at the end of the day, that's what it is. Like it is, it is taking that content, right, and it narratizes that, right? And you could make the case that a guide can also do that exact same thing, right? Like I could write a guide that is fun and interesting and you know, compelling on that sort of level without necessarily having to like lean on narrative, right? A well-written champion spotlight is a guide, but it has a lot of personality, right? And, and it's fun, sure. right? That's fair. That's fair. I don't know. We've gotten so, I don't even know where the fuck we are. Yeah, we're like fair. on time on this. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Well, I thought we weren't going to have enough time to deal with this. But yeah. Yeah, we thought we were going to have enough time to like talk about this whole thing. I don't even really know like where, where I ended up with it or whatever. I really, the thing I think about a lot is I think about that evocative nature of things. Um, you know, one of the, one of the parts of my job that's funny is, uh, reviewing titles, right? When we get games that we are thinking about publishing, we, you know, like we review them, different members of the team, um, all sort of review them. And then we give a big piece of comprehensive feedback. And I'm very used to this sort of thing because of when I was working at a production studio, um, where, um, because of where, where I was working at a production studio where I was doing script coverage, right? Where I was breaking, you know, that, the, the game down into these kind of, or the, uh, for that it was a script, into these kind of component parts in order to tell a producer whether or not I think it's a good or a bad idea to buy the option to this script, basically, right? Um, and uh, the, the, the question of evocation is always on my mind, right? You know, something that I had talked about before was how you know, last or last week in the that donkey segment was how, you know, I see games at this alpha stage a lot, and donkey does not properly 
demonstrate to me that he has the skill set, I guess is, is how I would say it, to like be an effective indie game publisher because, you know, you don't get the finished product. You don't get Undertale. You get a vertical slice that somebody made three years ago that hopefully will be you know, will be evocative of what what Undertale will eventually sort of look like. So I am thinking more and more in terms of those, you know, in terms of being evocative uh, these days and, um, and how games kind of coalesce into holistic, you know, products for, for individual people and kind of hit them in, in the right spot. And that's it. That's my, that's my thoughts. <laughs> that's, that's, that's totally fair. Um, I think, I think evocativeness is a very important part of making a game feel feel like a masterpiece in a lot of ways, right? Like I think the games that like stick with you are very evocative, and that's like a thing that we haven't really put our our fingers on. Um, yeah, in a lot of ways. I think that's I think that actually under underlines what uh, you know. I, I I fundamentally disagree with Tim Rogers' sort of um, action button season two thesis statement, which is that games that are modern and coming out now are you know bad sort of and like old games are are good right i actually think that boku no natsuyasumi sounds worse than mutazione right or you could even make a make an argument that something like you know like stardew valley or something like along those lines sort of an uh, an evolution of what boku no natsuyasumi is trying to to sort of like get at but the thing that boku no natsuyasumi does that attracts people is that is that holistic like that it can that it can sort of sure. evoke that whole and i think there are plenty of you know modern games obviously god of war being a good example right i would probably mention some of maybe like far cry would be a good good example of this um like some of those different far cry games that i've played um or um you know like other at the end of the day modern experiences that are like ultimate even like mutazione right mutazione is actually a pretty similar game all things considered to boku no natsuyasumi in the sense that it is a you know it is a game where you have a finite amount of time to just sort of relax and immerse yourself in the characters of this like world and you have little essential mini games to kind of go through and that's and that's like more or less it that's what the game is all about and what it and what it uh is uh predicated on right and i think the story of, of mutazione is deeper and more complex than what boku no natsuyasumi has to has to offer at least from you know my understanding of it from tim rogers exhaustive review <laughs> yeah i mean um, i feel like most or like a lot of tim rogers review is like a reflection on nostalgia as like a topic yeah. right like that is kind of like what he does with a lot of these things is kind of like reach some other point um but I, I kind of want to like reflexively disagree with you on the fact that like Mutazione is not a better game at like portraying a Japanese August, right? Like, which is okay, what sure. Botsu Natsuyaki is is setting out to do, right? Like, <laughs> how many different ways can we pronounce it? You yeah. tell us, chat. <laughs> um, but put it put it in the comments. <laughs> um, but I, I think I think I'm generally with you that like, it, uh, I almost called him Aaron Rodgers. Uh, Tim Rodgers um, is. Uh, is is like the cyber the end of the cyberpunk review felt like he was kind of like getting a little too deep into kind of like boomer nostalgia territory, um, which uh, I'm not a super big fan of. But 
I also don't think that yeah. val- validates his other opinions. But so I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm always interested to see what he has to say about things. Because I, like, I found the back part of the Botsu no Natsuyaki. I, I can't pronounce this, but the back end of that review where he basically goes into like how he like visited his childhood home in uh, Kansas. Kansas, yeah, and how that like basically flooded him with like nostalgia and emotion in a way that he was having trouble processing. Um, that like that I like I think that that's like a valuable thing to interrogate and look at, right? Because like I. I went back to our alma mater for our 10-year reunion. You were sorely missed. Um, but, like, it I, I, it was obviously not as deep because, you know, I, I had only, you know, been 10 years opposed to, like, the 20 that, that, that Tim Rogers had spent away from his uh, native Kansas. But, like, I felt a lot of that kind of, like, huh, right? Like, you know, this was, like, a thing that I've lost that was there. And I don't know, I, it's it's an interesting thing to experience. And it's also like, it, to kind of tie it back, it's an interesting thing that you could maybe capture in a video game, right? Like, you know, Boats No Yachts, this game captures the feeling of being a Japanese child in August, right? Like, which obviously has a different, would have a different value to me than it would to be like a Japanese businessman who had done that summer at some point, right? Like. Did you ever do that when you were a kid? Did you ever do, you know, obviously the Inaka doesn't exist in the United States, right? But, like, for instance, summer was always when my family would make two trips. Um, We would either go to Cape Cod, uh, which is where my aunt and uncle live and my cousin Nico lived, who's my age. And I would hang out with him in Cape Cod in Massachusetts. Or we would go to South Carolina, where my aunt and uncle lived and my cousin Zachary lived. Um, and we would hang out, you know, we would hang out in South Carolina, right? And, like, both of those were sort of, like, I, th- there is a lot of particulars. And by the way, I, I, I never went to the Enochka myself when I lived in Japan, but there are some pieces of that review that, like, fucked me up just from living in Tokyo. He describes this thing, he describes this thing that, of, walking out of your air-conditioned apartment into, like, the hot Tokyo uh, summer and then walking into an air-conditioned train station and an air-conditioned train so that you could go back into the Tokyo summer so you could go into an air-conditioned convenience store. And that is such a real feeling. It, like, it fucked me up because it's it's just so real of this like ping ponging in and out of in and out of air conditioning that was when I was you know in the summer in Tokyo what that was like what that was like or like the feeling he had this thing of like walking out of uh walking out of a a, a Tokyo convenience store and you walk through this blast of air conditioning right and you just immediately get drenched in sweat I'm just like oh like that's so real but whatever the case may be right like i, I feel like the 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 american version of that inaka sort of um, sort of summer does exist and it kind of exists in that like oh i'm going to go visit my aunt and uncle in this other you know this dramatically different part of the country uh, that just functions on completely different rules than the place that i that you know i grew grew up functions on yeah no like i think tim rogers mentions that like americans don't have like an equivalent tradition I'm like i think they do it just kind of like varies by region right like yeah like for me like i was fortunate enough that my my grandparents had a shore house that we would go to fairly regularly down the Jersey Shore. But, like, our big trip for the year was 
for most of my childhood down to the Outer Banks, North Carolina. Um, we'd rent like a you know like a room somewhere um, for the first handful of years, the same the same kind of like complex, and we'd go to the beach because that was close enough that we didn't have to fly, but far enough away that it was still exotic, and you know we could do a bunch of different things. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, and, th- and there's a lot of that. The, one of the things that I think is really unique about that is the process of it, right? Like I have all of these memories about the process of driving to different locations like so for instance my grandparents on my dad's side live in Ithaca New York right and the drive from Maplewood or Morristown depending on where I was living at the time from there to Ithaca is basically the same thing right um it's you know you drive along route 80 you drive up some of these other sorts of roads until until eventually you get off on sort of these like backwood streets and there are pieces of that drive that are etched into my memory in a way that are just like, like for instance, the Tannersville Diner, which ironically is the town next to the town that my partner Rachel grew up in, right? Like, so the Tannersville, like stopping at the Tannersville Diner because it's kind of halfway there is like a big thing, right? And getting spaghetti, getting spaghetti and meatballs at the Tannersville Diner, right? Or when we got off, um, uh, when we got off the highway and we started driving up through essentially sort of like country, like in-state, like highways that are not real highways, but they're like, you know, two two lane roads driving through the country. There's this spot where if we went at a different, like depending on what time of year we would go at and like where things were, there either was or wasn't a huge beaver dam like off to the right side and it was this thing of like did the beavers make their dam did they not make their dam right um as you know like as as we're like winding through uh you know as we're sort of like winding through and i can play vividly in my head like the the sight of it like cresting over the hill rounding down this you know this sort of slope the beaver the the little pond where the beavers may or may not have made their dam is off to my right and then you disappear into some forests like going like going further or whatever and i I feel like i have a million memories that are like that right like of these of these little individualized things that um you know when it when it comes to driving from maplewood to cape cod um or when it comes to driving you know down to um down to South Carolina, like what that felt like, what that was like. Um, I don't know. Anyway, yes, I agree with you that there is absolutely an American tradition of this thing. It is just that like the fundamentals of it are so different because America is so much larger than Japan. They're like, I mean, like for instance, if I were to have kids now, what would my kids think of? Right. We we're growing up in Los Angeles, but all my family lives on the East coast, right? Like we're going to get it. We're going to get into a plane and we're going to fly to New Jersey and it's going to be a completely different experience for them because they live in this place that is surrounded by mountains, right? You know, the mountains on the, on the West coast are so huge compared to mountains on the East coast. Um, and, uh, and I just like, I, I think about that stuff a lot, I guess. Yeah. No, I mean, plus, you know, there's differences in what that tradition might look like, right? Like I, I have, I had coworkers at one point who grew up, um, in like Sandy, San Diego, and their story, their childhood summer stories were about like going down to Tijuana and getting up to no good, right, and coming <laughs> home, right. Like, uh, and that's obviously a slightly different thing than a family vacation, but like that's like part of their like summer experience, right? Like, sure. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, even just the beach itself is something that's so different. You know, like when when I think of the beach, I think of 
the Atlantic Ocean, obviously, which is very warm water. People going, you're playing in the water. It, whether that's in, you know, where my grandparents lived in Florida, where my cousins lived in South Carolina, where I lived in New Jersey, or where my other cousins lived in Cape Cod, you can you can swim in all of those waters because the the Atlantic Ocean is very warm on the east coast of the of the United States. In California, the Pacific Ocean is very cold, right? So going to the beach is not about those things, right? Um, and uh, and like the idea that you go to the beach so that you can you know spend all day basking in in like warm water to like that's completely alien to to people in California compared to people in New Jersey. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I would dispute that the water is always warm on the East Coast, um, especially different parts of the year. But like, I, I I think I think part of the difference there too is something that I recognize. You know, when I lived on the. Um, West Coast is that like a lot of the beach parts that are beaches are fairly industrialized, right? Like you go on the Los Angeles beach, you can see like the ports, right? Um, and the parts that aren't tend to be pretty rocky. Like I drove a significant portion of the one um, at various times. And so like you can't really go on the beach there. Whereas like yep. almost all of the East Coast is like, uh, for lack of a better term, like tourist beach, right? Like the ports are all kind of like, you know, like the big ports on the East Coast are like New York, and there's, like, no beach on, like, the New York part of New York for most of it, right? Like, you go down to, you know, we have a word for them. They're called Bennies, right? Like, who <coughs> leave the city to go to, like, the beach part of the beach um, versus, like, in Los Angeles or in, like, San Francisco where I lived. You could, like, hop out onto the beach, but it was kind of, like, like, the nearby ones were, like, kind of ugly and kind of dumb. And also, like, you could see, like, you know, giant ships spewing smoke, like, from where you were sitting on the beach. You can't really do that on, on, on like, kind of the... Yeah, I think part of that is because it's true. Like, most of... When you do that drive up the one, which is fucking amazing and very cool, Yeah, beautiful. Right? Highly recommend um, it. Yeah. Uh, the... You are almost always, like, if you're driving... If you're driving north, to your left, you are several hundred feet in the air, and there is raw cliff face down to rocks right you know so much so that like the the history of california is sort of defined by this right where um you know you you can if you stop along the way you can see like little like plaques that are put up as as history it's like you know history markers or whatever that will talk about how um one of the things that happened in the late 19th century early 20th century in california was you would have ships that would be out on the coast right where they could actually kind of like drop anchor and sort of exist without getting, you know, crashed to pieces on these rocks. Then you'd have people rowed ashore in these big, in these like, you know, big rowboats essentially, climb the cliffs, cut down trees, th essentially throw the trees into these huge chutes that could then be loaded back onto those boats back out to the ships themselves, right? Um, in order to in order to transport lumber around the world, and it's just like that is that, that is like a completely different sort of topography uh, to to be to be dealing with compared to sort of the history of the East Coast. First of all, like first of all, the history of the East Coast is so much more defined by like the Revolutionary War, right? It seems like every town has that the, the historical house from the 1700s as mm, George Washington stayed in this house when, you know, the battle of, you know, Pawtucket happened. And it's just like, what the fuck, who cares? Like nobody, what is the battle of Pawtucket? Who knows? Right. You know, like that kind of stuff. Um, and it just, it just permeates everything that is, that is happening on the, on that side of the country. Yeah. I'm thinking not only that, but like, 
the East Coast got inhabited before, like, industry really, like, took over and got running, right? So, like, there's, like, less opportunity. Like, people, like, had state claims to the beach, and it was harder to, like, kind of, like, have industry happen out there. But that's, like, that's more, like, hist- historiography than anything else. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, you know, 15 minutes into this section, I don't think I've actually asked the question, how was uh, your week? uh you know i guess my week was pretty good well we i'm thinking about this a little bit too also because uh we drove to the big here's the big thing that happened i drove to las vegas um over the weekend because we got tickets from rachel's dad to go see roger waters uh do you know who that is offhand no he's the pink he's like the pink floyd guy he's the um and i think i'm a little surprised that that he's going yeah like you, obviously I know, you know who Pink Floyd is. I'm just yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> it is weird to me that that the show was mostly Pink Floyd music, half Pink Floyd music, um, and that it was not called Pink Floyd. Uh, but you know, but whatever. This dude is 79 years old. Okay, and he is rocking so fucking hard. I could not believe my eyes, right? Literally the best concert I've ever been to, which is like weird to say in and of itself because like I've been to some really high energy, you know, awesome, awesome concerts or whatever. Um, but Pink Floyd itself is just a band that I, I connected with really hard. You know, they, they say that your brain is in such a state when you're a teenager that you are imprinting upon yourself things that will define the rest of your life. And one of those things is music, right? Um, so for instance, one of the things that has been demonstrated about Alzheimer's patients is that Alzheimer's patients will have memory, like, like have memory issues about all these other sorts of things. But if you play them a song that they knew from when they were like 14 years old, they will be able to sing along to it. They will remember those lyrics. Right. Um, and it's just because like the power of music etching into your memory at that age is so insanely strong. And that's definitely true for, for, for me with Pink Floyd, right? Like I discovered Pink Floyd, um, when I was in, when I was in high school, I went through a huge Pink Floyd phase where I was listening to the wall and dark side of the moon, um, you know, shine on you crazy diamond, right? Like all that stuff. Wish you were here. I guess is the name of the album. But shine on you, crazy diamond is my favorite. It's my favorite song from that album. Um, and uh, and it was great to see that stuff. You know, like it was great to see that stuff performed performed live. I think partially because those songs are easier and less complex. I've been to a lot of metal concerts where I actually am a little pissed because the concerts themselves are not great. It feels like the music itself is not being played very well. And I think part of that is because metal is a more technically intricate version of music that is more complicated to execute on than you know prog rock essentially um i don't know maybe people would be really mad about that argue argue with me in the comments if you think that prog rock is harder to do than death metal (laughs) I, I, i think i think it depends on the individual artist right like i went and saw sabaton live in concert and they were fucking great um and i don't think their music's particularly complex right it's just like songs about like going to war right like um yeah sure i just mean that like the act of playing the guitar or like doing that stuff on drums it is probably harder to play a sabaton drum line than it is to play a pink floyd drum line i'm i'm assuming who knows anyway um the uh 
It was just, it was great. And they played all, they like, they played all the hits, right? Uh, but also, it was political as fuck. Uh, the thing I said, the thing I said, I was like, wow, Antifa Grandpa really knows how to, really knows how to sing me some great songs, right? Because, like, Roger Waters has a lot of thoughts politically, and he wants you to know them. Uh, even thoughts that would go so far as to say that, like, I would vehemently disagree with them, and, you know, in the in the instance that I was having a political debate with, with Roger Waters, but it was pretty fucking funny to see someone who, I guess he could just do whatever he wants, because, you know, he's the front man to Pink Floyd, and uh, wrote all of this insanely influential music in the 60s and 70s that everybody knows, and he's going to fill up that fucking stadium no matter what. So, you know what? When Antifa Grandpa says that he wants to make a whole diatribe about, like, the standoff at Standing Rock in North Dakota about that pipeline that has not been an issue for, like, six years or whatever that, like, nobody has paid attention to except for him, but he really wants you to know about it. It's just like, okay, well, you know what? I really love Wish You Were Here, so I guess I'll just close my eyes for like the big portion of that's happening on screen or whatever um anyway so see, it was great it was fantastic i loved i loved every second of it it's really interesting to hear that because like the best concert i've ever been to is i saw bruce springsteen live at the Meadowlands. um as like a, i know I'm a, I'm a born and bred jersey boy right like sure um also older not quite as old as roger waters he's 73 i looked it up while we were uh talking but he like he played for like like, he didn't have an opener, and he played for, like, four hours straight, and he was just fucking going for it, right? Like some, That was the same thing! Yeah. He didn't have an opener, he just yeah. played hard. Right, yeah. I mean, you know, both both artists have been around for a long time. Both can still go hard. Um, uh, but it's interesting, because, like, my parents are big Springsteen fans, um, but they used to complain, um, like, before I was old enough they'd consider taking us to the concerts, that... He would do this political diatribe thing in the middle of it, and they didn't really like it. They didn't. They wanted to hear the music. They didn't want to go to hear his political opinions. Um, probably hurt by the fact that I think they disagreed with him on a lot of things. Um, <laughs> but when I saw, he didn't do that at all. And I wonder if that's kind of like uh, he he didn't he, he if he if he you know I'm pretty sure he could fill stadiums for as long as he wanted to, but maybe he decided like that wasn't like a the look he wanted to go for anymore. I mean, obviously, like he had he had that podcast. I don't know if he still does with with the with uh, former President Obama, um, which obviously you know there's like a you know uh, obviously there's there's pol there, there's a political lens to that. Um, but uh, it, it's just interesting, like you know, a lot of musicians have like strong opinions, but like you know. I've been to a number of Weird Al concerts, and I don't know what he thinks about anything, right? Like, I don't That's true. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is that Pink Floyd music is fundamentally political on its base. Like, what? So, okay, you know, uh, without without being controversial, right? Like, one of the one of the questions about about politics when it comes to like war and like anti-war stuff is there's the question of World War II, right? So, for instance, one of the problems with anti-war stances is it has a hard time dealing with Nazi Germany in in traditional political rhetoric, whether you right right or left, right? Like this is this is what happens. What like everyone thinks World War II was a good idea. America swooped in. We did the morally righteous thing. We saved everybody. It is good. No one is going to take stake the position, no matter like. Who you are, Democrat, Republican, whatever. No one is going to stake the position that the, Amer the U.S. entering World War II was a bad idea. Let, let right? me tell you, Except buddy. 
I know some people. Um, well, no, but this is my point. <laughs> Except for fucking Roger Waters, buddy. Roger Waters is going to tell you that the fucking the United Kingdom, that the, that the allies are fucking hypocrites because they stopped Nazi Germany and then they brought back fascist movements to, like, suppress black people or whatever. And I'm just sitting there like, holy fuck, like, we are deep in it now, boys. Let's go. And it's just like, that, like, that is... Something that was baked into the show that I saw, you know, two days ago, and it was also baked into The Wall, which released in, like, 1980, right? Like, the part of the, the whole beginning of The Wall is, like, evoking Roger Waters, dirt, like, what it, what it was like for his family. He wasn't old enough, right? What it was like for his family during the Blitz, right? And what it was like growing up without a dad because his father, who, by the way, was a pacifist and a conscientious objector to World War II, and eventually saw that fascism was such a threat that he would later go on to enlist and then died in battle five months later. And it's just like, it's haunting how hard the wall goes about how terrible World War II was for him personally, right? Like, it's obviously a very personal album slash movie. Um, and at the very least, this dude is consistent because 40 fucking years later, he's making the exact same points, right? And to be fair, it's incredibly poignant. He, he, he did a new song called The Bar, and he had this thing where he was talking about how, um, you know, like one of the things that he hates about modern living, it's almost like a, he didn't quite go this far, but it was sort of like a damn kids in their phones these days, is that there is no such thing as the bar anymore, right? It used to be this thing where after work, you would go to the bar and you could meet it you could meet anybody you could talk with anybody you could have conversations you could build a sense of community and this is a thing that has been lost and technically speaking he's not wrong right in a sociological perspective this thing is called i think they were called like third places which is you know the bar the church the bowling right? alley the famously robert putnam's bowling alone right like Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Th that that's yeah. That's the that's the thing that he's like going off of yeah. essentially, right? Um, I I and many others would make the argument that people have created virtual third spaces, right? Like you know, you and I might have created our third spaces in Discord with playing video games with our friends, for instance, sure. right? Yeah. Um, but like whatever the case may be, this was this was his song. It's called the Bar, and he has this whole extended piece of that song that is just dedicated to retelling the story. Uh, it, it's telling the story of his older brother, kind of like dealing with the problems of essentially being the the man in the house, right? And he ends this whole verse, right, this whole long verse, by saying, "These were problems that I never had because uh, I was." Uh, it was, I, don't, I don't remember what the, the lyric was, but he was like, because I was born, I was only five years old when my dad, or five months old when my dad died, right? I don't even remember him in the first place. And it's just like, boy, that hits you like a ton of fucking bricks, let me tell you. But I think the thing about Roger Waters' politics that worked so well in this is that he never interrupted the music for it, which okay. was nice, right? Like, you know, um, you know, he the, the thing was... It was it was a big not, not not like a Christian cross. It was just a an actual cross. One of which was long ways. One of which was short ways, essentially. Um, but no matter where you were looking at it, you were getting sort of a um, 
I have no I how, how the fuck do I explain this? You you no matter which way you were looking at it, it sort of created this screen for you, right? And so it was doing stuff like, you know, post uh, like uh playing the song pigs um you know also a very consistently you know fascist bashing bashing song from the 70s uh, he was playing the song pigs over footage of police you know like brutality essentially right so like any of the any of the famous like brutal policing that has happened that has that has created this crisis of uh, <clears throat> of you know like how we're how we're dealing with cops and the police or whatever right like that stuff is playing but look if you're there for the song pigs you're at least listening to the song pigs it's not like there is no music going on it's just that he is taking the song pigs which was about cops in the 80s or 70s now it's about cops in the 2020s right like so anyway, that was Roger Waters. He was he was great. Yeah, no. uh, that was that was nuts. Uh, again, just as the compliment, right? Like Pink, I I'm, I do know Pink Floyd's band, but I never really like listened to any of their music, at least not in any concentrated way. Um, uh, but like Bruce Springsteen has some of that, right? Like famously, "Born in the USA" is like an anti-war song, but like "Tunnel of Love" is not. Like um, a lot of this stuff isn't. So it makes sense to kind of like he's. He's a little bit more tempered than than, than a firebrand like uh, like like Mr. Waters. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, there were there were some stuff that was that was like not explicitly political, which honestly was pretty sweet. Like the song "Wish You Were Here," right, which is about um, you know, you could say it's romance. It's it's a ballad, right? Um, it's it's also just maybe about platonic friendship, right? That song was a dedication to one of his bandmates, right? The guy he started Pink Floyd with, um, and it's just like, yeah, that guy's he's he's dead, and he misses his best friend that he like started his, you know, that he started his band with, and and the stuff that they that they that they did together. Now, there's obviously like no political angle to to something kind of along those lines, and even something like Shine On You Crazy Diamond, which is sweet, and the best guy. The, the guy with the best job was the saxophone guy because he, he pops out once every four songs, rips a super killer sax solo, and then fucking leaves. Like, <laughs> like you know, um, that that's a song that is effectively apolitical. It basically doesn't have any lyrics. And what the fuck does Shine On You Crazy Diamond even mean in the first place, right? So, you know, I don't know. If you are a conservative person and you are wondering if this thing is just like wall-to-wall Antifa propaganda, it's not. <laughs> yeah. No, um, so. uh, again, a parallel I want to draw to, to Bruce Springsteen. Um, if you, if anyone at home is familiar with 10th Avenue Freeze Out. It's basically a song about the formation of the E Street Band, which is Bruce Springsteen's band. Um, and there's a part where he says, and the big man joins the band, who's Clarence Clemens, who had passed away at the I mean, still passed away, obviously, but he had relatively recently passed away at the time that they that I saw them play. And he just pauses the song, and like I guarantee you, there wasn't a dry eye in the audience, right? Like that that kind of thing, right? Like, um, but yes. Uh, Sorry, I just wanted to put that in there because because you reminded me of it. But um, yeah, so sounds like you had an exciting. Did you do anything else in Vegas? 
Honestly, not all that much. I mean, I did not engage in any machine gambling, uh, though I has completely rewritten the way, you know, I went to Vegas a couple of years ago before I had read that book and I didn't even think about, you know, like I didn't think about this, right? You just kind of like walking up by, um, but it was sort of interesting and nuts, uh, going after I have read the book about machine gambling, um, like walking through the floor of, uh, walking through the floor of a of a casino. I don't think I saw anybody who's addicted to machine gambling though. One of the things that the book talks about is that you know machine like someone who is addicted to machine gambling is mostly looking for sort of a private place where they don't have to feel you know like going to a big public casino right like they're we, we stayed in the excalibur because it was right next to the arena um going to the um going to the arena I'm sorry, going to the fl the casino floor and seeing people sitting on, uh, you know, like these, these slot machines or whatever, right? Like, I, a someone who is an addict doesn't want to be there. They're going to feel judged, right? Um, they're going to feel shame being in a big open public spot with it. But when we went to a 7-Eleven and in the back of the 7-Eleven, there's this walled off section of it, right? With little cubicles that you really can't see into. That's where you would expect to find someone who is a machine gambling addict, right? Because they can be truly private and alone with their addiction there, um, which I think is interesting. So anyway, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I did in Vegas. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, the only really big thing I did with my week that isn't a repeat of previous weeks is I built oh boy a hitbox. Um, I built a prototype of a hitbox. It's this crappy little thing in a uh, in a Tupperware box um, as part of the learnings. And this works, right? Like this is super easy. It wasn't super expensive. The things bouncing around in there are spare parts, not anything super critical. Um, but it is literally just this. Yeah, let me see if I can put it up there. This board, so board only works with the PC. You have to pay like two or three times more if you want a board that works with the console. But, mm. uh, you know, you just hook the buttons up with like some basic jumper cables. I highly recommend FocusAttack.com if you're going to do this. Um, like part of the reason I did this is the hitboxes hit are always sold out. Like always sold out. Um, and it's not that hard to make one, right? Like this thing requires some work, right? The buttons aren't positioned right. Like... This top is not stable enough that like I can't really do like the slide thing that's supposed to make this easy. But this works, and I can play Strive with it if I want to. Um, uh, and I'm gonna my my project is uh, to to um, I've got hold on I've got this briefcase this like crappy briefcase. I'm gonna try and build like a better one in here, um, and then uh, eventually my hope is that uh, I'll. Take the parts for this one because they're slightly different than the parts I'm going to use for that one. I'm going to make, I'm going to try and make an ergonomic split box um, for fighting games because I feel like that's like, uh, you know, um, I'll talk about this next week, but I've got a fancy new ergonomic keyboard, right? Like, why shouldn't I have that for something like this too, right? Like, like, mm -hmm. like this is essentially the hitbox layout. Um, I discovered by accident that there's a reason that like hitboxes are all cramped, and that's because like it lets you like move your, like, use your right hand to hit the up button if you need to, but, like, um, this is, like, a very cramped thing to do, and probably, like, apparently hitboxes are popular with people, um, who have, like, hurt their wrists using joysticks, and I think you could just take that up, like, you know, if I could take this, split it in half, and pull it apart, then it would be even, uh, 
even better. So that's Project for the Future, but it's super fun to put together. I highly recommend that if you're interested in a lever list, or even if you want to build your own stick, this isn't hard, right? Like, like you, need, you probably want a better case than this piece of crap that I got, but you can find those places, right? Like, you know, maybe find like an old stick somewhere and replace the parts, but this is not hard to do. It's like an afternoon of like pushing wires together and um, between the buttons and the, and like the cabling, it probably cost me like $120, $550, which is not nothing, but it's a lot cheaper than like a new, a new hitbox is like 225 So, um, yeah, use that extra budget to get yourself a, a better case than this. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. But yeah, uh, focusattack.com if you guys are interested in buying, buying your own parts. Um, yeah. Uh, but that was basically my week. Otherwise, I played a bunch of uh, what's it called? Um, uh, Rumbleverse. That's what it's called. Um, I played some Rumbleverse. I played some Crusader Kings. Um, uh, yeah, that's basically most of what I I dove a little bit into Absolute Tactics, which seems like a solid strategy game. Gotta say, I wasn't the biggest fan of the writing. Um, <laughs> fair enough, you know, okay. <laughs> and there's like, it's interesting. Cause like there's little quality of life things, right? Like I had to exit out in the middle of a fight and it restarted the fight for me. I don't know if that's supposed to happen or not. Um, uh, yeah, that is the, yeah. the, the save point is the beginning of a fight. Uh, when you when you leave a fight, you keep your experience, uh, but you like the 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 you can only save again once you have defeated the encounter. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Because um, I like, I was like, you know, there's some scripted events in the fights, but it's not like clear like where the edges of it are. So I managed to get myself killed in like the second, no, the third fight, the first one with like the big enemies. Because I was like, oh, these people aren't moving; they'll just let me do whatever I want until I like free. This third person. And then they started attacking. They're like, oh, no. And then I died. Um, <laughs> oh, I know exactly what you're talking about, actually. I yeah. do. Know, because they spawn those extra guys in there. And if you, like, split your party up, they uh, they kind of uh, overwhelm, overwhelm you. Yeah. Lou says in the chat, not sure what mode you picked, but I recommend playing higher than normal mode. Normal is way easier. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. I started playing on, on hard based on your recommendation, Lou. So, so thank okay. you. Um, I also pl only play that game on. Uh, oh, or have only played that game on hard because I was the only person to test it on hard. So uh, the fact that those did you did you get to a war level? No, I, I played the I played the first three missions, then I went back and did the optional versions of the first two. Oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. Did you find the secrets in those two? No, yeah. Well, the first one they point point you to it, and the second yeah, one yeah. is was yeah was 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 pretty obvious, yeah. That that's one of my favorite. Like I I really like those uh, those optional missions and just kind of like you know in a way I don't think I actually want this, but it's sort of like a like when uh when a game like this has a story that you need to complete, right? Um, it's uh it's always sort of weird to sort of putter around, but I like puttering around when it comes to these sorts of tactics games, which, by the way, is the difference between hard and full goth mode. Lou is talking in the chat. Uh, I, I don't know if you have played full goth mode, but the thing that happens in full goth mode is a unkillable 
like Grim Reaper spawned, and you can see where he spawns in the map. There's like a little tombstone somewhere in the, somewhere in the map. Um, an unkillable Grim Reaper spawns like five or six turns in, and he just starts hunting your guys down, and you cannot kill him. He just kicks the shit out of you. you the only thing you can do is CC him, right? Um, which is insanely cool and fun but also like it means that for someone like me who will spend literal turns just like rearranging the order of my guys before i sort of like run into the next section it's like hell on earth right because you you no longer have the the benefit of having 20 you know 20 turns to sort of sort through this shit right yeah yeah. Um, the other thing I didn't like is that, like, and this is a tradition in tactics games, so I'm not, I'm, I'm not playing this at at, at uh, absolute tactics V, but like, you know, when there's a chest on the map and you can't hit it after you've won the game, so you have to keep like dragging like a weak enemy around so you can like hit all the boxes. <laughs> it's like a thing that just like annoys yeah. me. Uh, yeah, it's slow play punishment. And I hate it. Yep, that is that is absolutely true. That's a that's a real thing. So. Oh man, I I have been watching a bunch of like Magic the Gathering uh, YouTube videos. Um, I'm doing a sealed tournament with some coworkers uh, over the course of the next few weeks. Um, but like, have you heard about? Uh, there's this setup where basically you might win the game, and like theoretically you could if you did it infinite num an infinite number of times. But like, essentially, it comes down to a coin flip. And like, sometimes the coin flip will make your your opponent stronger, but the other one half half will uh, make them weaker. And so, like theoretically, if you did enough times, you'd be able to like, like it's not deterministic. So like theoretically, like if you did enough times, you'd win. But like like it's you can't name the number of times, um, because like you like you know, it's theoretically infinite. And so like there's like a ruling around that's like it's slow play and like how many times you should be able to attempt it. Cause it's, it's like I said, it's like a coin flip, but once you get past like seven, you're almost certainly going to lose. And the chances of you ever winning go down astronomically. I'll find the video and I'll link it, but like, you know, it's interesting, dumb stuff like that. Also there's this, um, it's the YouTubers called magic to Noah. And he's got a bunch of videos. He's like, this is a deck that will make no one like you. It's, it's based around land destruction. You should never play this deck. Here's a deck list. Um, uh, or like this this deck is ninety seven swamps. This is your game game plan. Um, you basically draw a bunch of these swamps and then do use a card that like you discard cards to like um, discard cards to deal damage, and that's how you win. And uh, this is a dumb deck, and it costs two hundred and thirty dollars. Uh, so you shouldn't play it. But it's ninety seven swamp commander deck. Go for it. Um, Interesting. Yeah, the one that I pay attention to is Pretty Dece by by John Capora, which is hosted on the TCG Player. Um, uh, the TCG player separated, which is mostly just that John himself is a very active speaker. Like when I am, when I am making like stuff for my job, I want to emulate the way that he talks because he just has a very engaging way of actually breaking some of this stuff down. Um, and, uh, and I don't know, I just, I like, I always want to emulate that as much as, as much as possible, but I, I do not pay a ton of attention. Magic moves too fast for me these days. They went from three sets a year to four sets a year. Uh, and that has broken my ability to comprehend and keep up with magic. I am officially a boomer. There's too many magic cards coming out. 
a thousand cards a year is way way too much especially now that so many of them are built specifically for commander i don't know i think i would maybe go on a rant and say that they're ruining the game but i also don't like uh, that. no i, I mean that position wizard like wizards ruin commander sounds very boomerang but like they kind of did in the sense that like commander is a serious format now and it was never supposed to be right like the community came, tries to keep coming up with ways to make magic not super competitive, and then wizard, and then it'll get popular, and then wizards will officially incorporate it, and then it'll become like, like I mean, and I think that that like you even got there with like commander before it got officially incorporated, like when it was still like what elder dragon highborn, right? Like your your commander deck is not a, like relying on any commander specific cards, right? And that's like a pretty oppressive deck as it stands, right? There's just, like, enough cards that exist to, like, make it work. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I liked Commander before Commander became Commander um, because part of part of the fun of that was sort of the discovery, right? Like, yeah. talking about fun as discovery, just, like, pulling out interesting cards from weird... You know, like, my very first Commander was Rexiel the Risen Deep, and it was literally... I, I used him... Just fucking because I wanted a blue-black commander, and there just, like, weren't a lot of blue-black legends. And, like, he's kind of doing stuff, but really, at the end of the day, that was just, like, a blue-black control deck. I never fucking won a single game of commander on that deck. It's not true. I won a couple. But it's just, like, it's exceedingly rare that I would ever yeah. win, like, a game of commander on that deck. Um, and then, you know, commander sets started coming out, and uh, and I got back into it. Obviously, this was, like, I talked about this on the podcast. 2017, 2018, that kind of era of commander. Um, that was when a new commander set came out once a year basically um and you would have one you know big drop of new commander cards every single year um and and that's what and that's what sort of commander players kind of had to look forward to and that even that was like a little much but i would ultimately say it's cool it's fine the thing that that changed is they went from producing pre-cons for uh, non-commander formats, basically, right? Like, every new set included a set of pre-constructed decks for non-commander, you know, like, for non-commander formats um, to making their pre-cons commander format, which means that you are now getting an influx of commander cards every three months. And it's just like, who can keep up with that, right? Um, at a certain point, also, like, the thing about commander is that the... Uh, Highlander aspect of the games means that you can't build for consistency, right? But if you start, if you print a thousand cards a year, right? Baseline, you're you're now getting into situations where you're gonna have multiple cards that can kind of execute on the same sort of, of thing, right? Well, not only are they printing a thousand cards a year, but half of those cards are geared specifically to commander at that point right it's just like i don't think commander can survive in that format commander is now a, a a you know a turn four turn five win sort of sort of format and like that's why i stopped playing regular magic because it was it was getting too consistent yeah um so i don't know i would i i can't actually stake that position i haven't played commander in a long time just because i got so turned off by by this stuff um maybe it is better than i than i'm saying but the, no, I mean, I the, the, pro the problem, I think, is that a lot of these formats are kind of, like, self-policed, right? Like, you know, you show up at the table and you agree to, like, not play, like, your turn four decks, right? Like, but, like, even that's hard because it's like, well, I brought this deck and it, it was good, it's effective, but is it too good for, like, the spirit of Commander or whatever? It's just, like... Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I mean, there's all this stuff in Commander about rating your power level. Oh, my deck is a 7, my deck is a, a 10, my deck is a 5, or whatever. And it's just like, first of all, everybody always fucking says their deck is a 7 because nobody ever wants to say that their deck is a 9, right? Um, and second of all, uh, it's just like, how... Like, how much do I need to jump through these fucking hoops to just yeah. have a fun game of Magic? Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, yeah. That, this this is like the 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 culmination of what we talk of what we've talked about. It's like people say they want close matches, but they want matches that they win, right? Like that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> People say they yeah. want fun matches, or they they want like good competitive fun matches what they really want is they want to stop their dumb friends to the ground with the perfect deck right like um they want their friends to agree to play against them and put up enough of a challenge that it is not just like you know like taking candy from a baby and then they just like want to absolutely fucking dump it probably depends on the player it's like the Johnny wants your opponents to play and not touch you until you can pr- pull off your perfect like fancy land combo and win everything. No, oh my so god, clever. yeah, that's that, that is a thing that is real in Commander. People talk about the engine. Your deck, your deck has to have an engine, Mango. You have to have an engine, and you have to have tutors in order to find your the pieces of your engine. And Commander is fun when you assemble your engine and it goes off. And it's just like no. Fuck this. This is not what I'm here for. Yeah. I am here to, on turn nine, hard cast my eight mana commander and then have a whole, have to wait a full rotation of the table in order to swing with him once for a piddly effect. That's the commander that I want, Mango, right? <laughs> like, fuck. <laughs> uh. Uh, this makes me want to run that, like, this is, like, everyone will hate you deck, that uh, Magic the Noah... I'll put up. It's just like it's just like four different type, like four to eight different types of like land destruction. It's like that's the whole game is destroy lands and make everybody hate you. Also, we've got some counter yeah. spells and some tap effects, right? Like, um, um, which is probably the worst thing in the world, but it sounds like fun. Or it sounds it's like pure pure Dave is like you know the way to make everybody hate you. But yes, yeah, that's magic. We we're we're like way over time. We're like twenty minutes over time at this point. So you know. Yeah. Um, uh, if you want to email us what you think about Commander or Holistic Games or whatever else the fuck we talk, or, you know, Japanese Summers or American Summers, email us at subversplaygames.com or podcast.subversplaygames.com. You can follow us on twitch.tv slash subversplaygames or these go out live. We've got a YouTube. We've got a Patreon. We've got all those great things. Rate and review us. Uh, that's everything I have. But do you have anything else you want to promote? You know, I have nothing else I am looking to promote. All right. Well, in that case, I'm going to say, until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners.